What's with this band anyway? I don't get it, can you please explain? Wait, like bands playing? Welcome to Bandsplain. I am your host, Yasi Salik. This is a show where credentialed experts come on to explain and sometimes defend the honor of cult bands. Today's episode is about Counting Crows. If you don't know what Counting Crows sounds like, perhaps you've been in a coma since 1993 and just recently woke up. Welcome back. Here is what Counting Crows sound like. Our guest today is Stephen Hyden, the Mr. Jones, to my someone just a little more funky. He is the author of four books, including This Isn't Happening, Twilight of the Gods, Your Favorite Band is Killing Me, and with Steve Gorman, Hard to Handle. His writing has appeared in the New York Times Magazine, Washington Post, Billboard, Pitchfork, Rolling Stone, Grantland, The AV Club, The Ringer, Slate, and so on. He is also currently the cultural critic at Uproxx and the host of two podcasts, IndieCast and 36 from the Vault. Welcome to the show, Steve. Thanks for having me. I just want to say at the outset that I normally don't bandsplain to uh, women because I feel like that's not culturally acceptable. So I just want to put that out there that I'm doing this because you've asked me to bandsplain on this very special occasion. I simply do not believe you. Uh, we could have my wife come on here and verify. I I I don't bandsplain around the house. I don't bandsplain recreationally. Um, okay, I'll believe you, you guys. For the record, uh, I have invited this bandsplain, and I did it to myself. Um, let's get started. I'm pretty excited to talk about Counting Crows. My love and devotion to the Counting Crows is widely known, um, and I believe yours is too. Absolutely. Why don't you uh, tell us about who these people are? Who are the crows that we are counting today? (laughs) So Counting Crows are a band that formed in 1991 in Berkeley, California, which I feel like might be a surprise to some people because Counting Crows are very associated with Los Angeles, which is in Southern California. And Berkeley, of course, is Northern California. But they started in the north and eventually moved down south. And the guys in the band were in different bands before. Adam Duritz, of course, the lead singer, was in a group called the Himalayans. He did a lot of time in the local music scene up there. He was like in his late 20s, really, by the time he got started with Counting Crows. But once he was in that band, they had a real dramatic trajectory to the top of the music industry. And there's like 12 people in this band. There's 12 white men in this band. <laughs> yes. Well, I, yeah, I believe it's about six. And there's been different people that have come in and out of the band throughout the years. So the members include uh, David Bryson. He's the guitar player. There's David Umergluck, who's the, another guitar player. I believe I'm pronouncing that correctly. You have Dan Vickery, the third guitar player. You have Millard Powers on bass. 
drummer Jim Bogios, uh, and of course the great Charlie Gillingham on keyboards. Amazing. But Adam Duritz is the most famous person in the band. He's the face of the band. Uh, I feel like people know him, even if they don't know this band very well, because he is the most famous example of a white guy having fake dreadlocks in rock history. Yes. And he's very recognizable. It's entirely possible they're the only reason I can sing. Well, I don't know. I don't know how much we're going to talk about the dreadlocks in this episode. It's not called hairsplain, you know. <laughs> I don't agree with you that they seem like an L.A. band because um, aforementioned uh, vibe and look to me screams Berkeley, California. Also, for the record, Steve, uh, Adam Duritz did at first have real dreadlocks, just so everyone knows for the hair records. And you know what? I think Adam Duritz should do whatever he wants with his hair because it is a free country. <laughs> um, uh, in 1982, they recorded a series of demos that were very well received. Apparently, there were like nine record labels that bid to sign them up for the first record. Uh, supposedly, they got so much money for that first record that they were known as accounting crows uh, at Geffen Records, where they were eventually uh, <laughs> booked. And before their first record came out, uh, in early 1993, they had a really high-profile gig at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame performing before Van Morrison was inducted. They played the song Caravan. And they were introduced by Robbie Robertson of the band. So there was like a lot of hype in the music biz about this band uh, before their first album came out. And that first record, it comes out September of 1993. It's called August and Everything After. And that ends up just being a huge smash hit album. Uh, sells 7 million copies uh, on the strength. I think in a big way because of the hit single from that record called Mr. Jones, which is still a song that you probably hear at CVS or Walgreens uh, every time you go in. That's right, baby. So that's it, it, probably like still like their most famous song, although there's other songs that they've put out after that that I think are pretty well regarded as well, which we can get into later. Uh, but that's the basic background on this band. Okay, well, we will get no further before the people hear Mr. Jones. But I did notice that you chose an alternate version of Mr. Jones, which I deeply love. And I do think everyone on God's good earth has heard the normal version of Mr. Jones. So why don't you set up this other version that you chose, which I'm very excited to hear and to play for the people? Yeah, I, I feel like Mr. Jones is one of those songs that we've all heard a million times. And if this is a show where we're trying to explain a band that people might not get, maybe it's worth playing a different version of the song that might make people hear it with fresh ears. So, yeah, this is a live version uh, that was released in 1997. And it's acoustic. It was originally on VH1 Storytellers. And yeah, it's really different, but I think it puts the song in a different light. and Maybe you'll hear it in a new way. All right, let's hear Mr. Jones off of VH1 Storytellers. Mr. Jones and me tell each other fairy tales. Okay, that was Mr. Jones off of VH1 Storytellers. Wow, really hits. It really hits in my heart. And I think um, we should just play a quick clip of the original Mr. Jones so people can really hear the contrast. Mr. 
It's interesting because um, it doesn't have a conventional structure for a pop song. Like there's not really a chorus to the song. It just kind of continues the same way throughout. But Adam Duritz just has this dynamic vocal personality in the song, very Van Morrison-esque. Um, and I think that's what jumped out to people when they heard this tune for the first time. I did not realize that Mr. Jones and me, uh, we go down to the barrio was not a chorus. I mean, I guess it is technically, but it's not really, it doesn't sound different than the rest of the song. Like It just kind of continues the same way throughout. It's, there's not like a conventional verse chorus with a bridge. It's really just that guitar strum and Adam Duritz talking about wanting to be famous throughout the entire track. Got it. Once again, I am um, unqualified to talk about music. <laughs> I could be wrong. I mean, maybe it's a chorus, but to me, it doesn't, it's not quite the same. Like you're used to pop songs on the radio hitting you over the head with the chorus. And this doesn't feel like the same thing to me. It feels like a little unusual that this song was such a hit. You know, I, I it's hard for me to imagine a song like this being a hit today. Honestly, should we start a movement? <laughs> Mr. Jones TikTok movement? Let's make it happen. <laughs> I want to point out that, which is, I'm sure, the point maybe you were also making, this version came out in 1998. And I think it's like, which we're getting a little ahead, but I do want to point it out while it's fresh in people's minds. This is really telling of how famous they got, how fast, and what it was doing to Adam Duritz's psyche. Like the lyrics, yeah, we all want to be big, big, big stars, but we got second thoughts about that. And I want to be someone to believe you should not believe in me. Those were purposeful choices. Yeah, I mean, I love that version, too, because I, I feel like Counting Crows live versions tend to alienate people because of all of the improvisation that Adam Duritz does vocally. He kind of gets into this like jazzy scat singing zone <laughs> where as I, I appreciate that aspect of their live stuff. And I, I like that they rearranged this song pretty dramatically. But I also feel like that's maybe something that puts people off sometimes with Counting Crows. They don't know what to make of this band sometimes. Uh, I think in the way Adam Duritz writes and his vocal style, I think is very emo. Are you saying Counting Crows invented emo? <laughs> it's funny you say that. That's what I heard. I, oh, are we going to talk about Adam Duritz wearing the Get Up Kids t-shirt that I have saved on my phone forever in my favorites photos? <laughs> Oh, that doesn't surprise me. You know, a long time ago, I did a story on this band, Maritime, who used to be the guys that were in the Promise Ring. And sure. Shout out Promise Ring. Promise Ring, of course, being a big emo band from Wisconsin. And they talked about Counting Crows and how in their tour van, they would listen to Counting Crows records, like recovering the satellites in particular was like a big thing for them. I mean, there's something about Adam Duritz's vocal where... It sounds like he's crying, like when he's singing, especially when he gets 100%. up into his upper register. And it's one of those things where if you're on the wavelength of the record and the band and you're in maybe even a similar headspace as Adam Duritz was when he wrote whatever song he's singing, you're totally with him. But if you're not, it can just be cringe inducing almost you know in the same way that being around anyone who's sad or depressed can be painful to be around you know i think the purity of how he expresses those feelings um because it's so unfiltered and it's so intense 
it's just a lot. It's a lot to take in for people and not everyone could take it. We said the same thing actually about Dave Matthews, um, who you do not care for. Um, but D- Dave Matthews <laughs> often when he gets into his higher register sounds like he's crying. And you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna notice something about myself. I think my kink is men sounding like they're crying. <laughs> And I'm okay with that. There is something about that, that, you know, sensitive male singer songwriter of the 90s who also happened to be very successful. But at the same time, they had this inner turmoil that they were expressing to like millions of people. And it's something that I think in retrospect, when people look back on it, if you were alive at the time and you were a fan, I think some people reflexively affect an ironic distance from that or they try to laugh at it because it's almost like a high school picture of yourself you know it's like i don't want to acknowledge that i was once that sensitive but we shouldn't do that we should embrace that part of ourselves these men were the soundcloud rappers of their generation (laughs) and in keeping with that they got all the hot girls. Like, let's never forget that Adam Duritz's like dance card of women he dated is frankly like insane. Two right. friends, not just one friend, two friends. Exactly. Jennifer Aniston and Courtney Cox. Which is like, how did you pull that off, babe, without like them getting mad at each other? I'm so curious. This man dated a woman who went on to date Brad Pitt. I want you to let that sink in, everyone. And <laughs> the thing with with Duritz too is that people are always incredulous when they talk about this. It's it's it'd be one thing if it were, you know, like a Dave Matthews or an Eddie Vedder, pe- more conventionally handsome men. You'd say, oh, of course they're dating actresses. But people look at Duritz, and again, we go back to the fake dreadlocks issue. They think, why would all of these beautiful, successful actresses be dating this guy? And you know. Well, I would say, first of all, he's a rich, successful, charming rock star. That's why you would date someone like that. But also, I think it goes back to this idea of Duritz having a purity of expression that I he think... has a beautiful soul and these women right. saw it and wanted to be near it. And can you blame them? Exactly. And it seems genuine. He doesn't strike me as a guy who, like a lot of sensitive male balladeers that you might look at them and say, well, they're probably actually not that sensitive. This is something that they're affecting in order to have a persona that is attractive to people. But with Duritz, I'd I'd never get that feeling. And I think the thing with Duritz, too, that I think is so unique to him is that, you know, there's sad music that's like romantically sad, that you listen to it and you feel like Mm -hmm. you're in a movie when you're listening to it. Like, Like Nick Drake who I love Nick Drake, but you listen to him and you feel like if you're depressed and you listen to Nick Drake, you feel like you're in a Wes Anderson movie. God forbid, but yes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Whereas if you're listening to Counting Crows and you're depressed, there's something about the way Adam Duritz writes and Then you're Yossi Salek, the Yossi Salek story. (laughs) Or you're me, you know, and maybe we can play this song next, but I was thinking of the song Anna Begins from August and Everything God, yes, please. Yes, which is an amazing song. Do we want to hear it first before talking about it? Yeah, let's hear Anna Begins. And while you're listening, everyone, I want you to imagine that when I sing it and listen to it, I say Yossi Begins. Okay, here's (laughs) Anna Begins off of August and everything after. 
that was Anna Begins off of August and Everything After, or if you're me, Yossi Begins. This feels like a great entry point into talking about my personal fandom and in particular talking about how for whatever reason these bands in the 90s cemented my young mind's ideas of what it was to be a desired woman and it was to be mentally ill. And I think I could say that, Producer Dylan, I hear you. But, you know, this woman, she's she can't stop shaking and her kindness bangs a gong. And Anna was one. There's other songs which we'll get to about Maria. There's a couple of songs about Maria. She also sounds like she has some problems. And there's just some like there's something about these songs that were about women who seemed inaccessible because they were kind of crazy. (laughs) And it really made me feel like that's what it was to be desired and I don't think I've ever been able to shake that off like it's still that's why I am who I am that's like a fascinating perspective for me because like when I listen to Anna Begins and I think about listening to it as a 16 year old I related to the guy in that song like to me that song is about having a friend that you are in love with and you're not really sure if it's being reciprocated and then maybe something happens where it's consummated or something happens romantic between the two and then she pulls away again and there's that part in the middle of the song where he's like pleading with her almost to like explain to him like what do I have to do to make you love me and it's like I can even change my name if that's what you need you know and just to go back to what I was saying before about sadness and how some songs make you feel like you're in a movie and the begins makes me feel like oh this is what it's like to be realistically sad like there's something totally flailing about this song where you know like like if you've ever been depressed and you've tried to express that to people who aren't depressed maybe this is just in your head but you feel like they're pulling away from you because there's something almost repulsive about someone who's too sad it's like people don't want to be around someone who's too sad because it's difficult especially a sadness that's like this which is yearning because yearning is is right. a, like people are are turned off by need and by yearning and it, wanting and that that's the specific i would argue brand of sadness in these Counting Crows songs like it really sounds like longing and again longing people don't like it (laughs) makes them uncomfortable exactly and yeah I think Duritz writes about that about as as well as anyone I can think of that uncomfortable kind of yearning which yeah some people are turned off by it but if you've been in that position before or even if you're in a time in your life where it makes sense in that moment It's like forever after that, you're going to feel connected to that song because it's like it's almost like that song or that record was the only thing that understood you at that moment. You mean like if you were 12 and you had acne and braces and frizzball hair and your name was Yasem and Salek? Oh, man. Do you mean that like that? (laughs) Or if your name was Stephen Hyden. I mean, you were almost describing me, except I'm a little bit older and uh, the hair is a little bit different. But uh, yeah, exactly. So we're just too broken 
teenage losers still all these years later. That's why we still love Amen. these songs. It's I so think. true. I even got hot and it didn't even matter. My stupid personality <laughs> is cemented. Um, okay, so I want to hear, I saw on your um, playlist that you have around here. Because I think besides Mr. Jones and my memory might not serve correctly, but I think that was one of the bigger radio hits. For the Counting Crows? Yeah, I, it was a song that they played on Saturday Night Live when they were right. on that show as that album really started to break. And I feel like it's the song, with the exception maybe of, of A Long December, like I feel like around here in Long Oof, December maybe gorgeous. the two most beloved. A Long December is probably the most beloved at this point, and I'm sure we're going to play that later on here. You, but, better, uh, you bet your bottom dollar <laughs> that we're going to play that. Maybe we'll play it twice. It's my show. Oh, absolutely. But yeah, around here is this Vision Quest song. It's like the Thunder Road of August and everything after. So yeah, we definitely need to hear it. That's a Bruce Springsteen reference. And I think producer Dylan will appreciate it. <laughs> Let's hear Round Here. But we sacrifice like lambs round here. That was Round Here by Counting Crows. I have some questions and some comments. Do you want to start with more of a comment than a question? Yes, let's start with the comment. Okay, once again, I'm going to say, you know who else is close to understanding Jesus and knows she's more than just a little misunderstood and also has trouble acting normal when she's nervous? (laughs) That's right. It's me. (laughs) (laughs) You did have this phenomenon in the 90s where you had male singer-songwriters who were comfortable writing about female characters. You know, Adam Duritz did that, as you mentioned. Like, Eddie Vedder did that in a bunch of Pearl Jam songs. You mentioned the Hootie and the Blowfish song. And I wonder if there's something about how if you're a man singing about a woman in distress, there's a different energy to that than men singing about men being in distress. You know, where it becomes almost like, if it's just men talking about men, it becomes potentially more of a toxic, angry dude type thing, which you definitely saw like once alt-rock got kicked to the curb by the end of the 90s and you got into the new metal stuff and it was more of like angry guys with their shirts off, flipping the finger at everybody, you know. They did it all for the nookie, yeah. Yeah, like if you're, but if you're singing about women, there's something where I think now we're talking about everybody. It almost feels more universal. It it invites more people in than just dudes being angry about being dudes. What does that say about men? A and B. Interesting. Like you could have just been your own vulnerable self, and you didn't have to hide. <laughs> you didn't have to hide behind Maria. But I guess it was a different time. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, Stephen, we talked a lot about the songs and their emotion, but I think we need to talk a little bit about exactly how big they were in culture from just this one album and like who made them that big? Like what was the critical reception? What was the fan reception? Yeah, if you look at when August and Everything After came out, it comes out in September of 1993. It's the week before In Utero comes out, the the Mm -hmm. final studio album by Nirvana. So... Counting Crows is really getting going when grunge is on the verge of collapsing in a very real way. You know, Kurt Cobain dies in uh, April of 1994. And 
1984 is really, really like when Counting Crows blew up. I mean, because I believe yeah. Mr. Jones started getting played on MTV at the end of 93. And there was a steady rise where people discovered that record. It was the kind of album that I think for a long time people felt was almost like a secret, even though they did get a lot of hype in the music industry. It was a grower, not a shower. Exactly. As we say. It took a little while for it to blow up. I think they're wrongly grouped into this class of band that right or wrong is associated with very 90s music. Like who? That post Nirvana, like alternative rock boom, you know, like a lot of one hit wonder type bands. Um, many bands that might end up being featured on this show that because they're actually good bands, but they kind of get stigmatized because they were so exposed for a couple of years on the radio. And they all have like maybe one song that everybody knows and is maybe a little bit sick of. Uh, Blues Traveler, Blind Melon, Live, Bush. Uh, bands that all sold millions upon millions of records. But I think now, again, I think somewhat unfairly in, in many cases, people just sort of relegate that to like, well, that's just 90s music, you know, that right. we don't need to care about that anymore. Even though and, it's all kind of very different. Like these bands that you just listed are also, well, not me so, but quite different from each other. Exactly. So it really was, I think, it was a pretty diverse music scene, I think, at that time where like lots of different kinds of artists had a platform where they could have a piece of like the pop music pie this was before starbucks sold cds but their cd would have been sold at starbucks oh my god yeah absolutely it would have slayed at starbucks slayed you and the amount of frappuccino and august and everything after combinations that they would have sold would have been epic <laughs> um well okay so we've kind of situated how big they were but they weren't cool. <laughs> they weren't. I don't I don't think again, I was OK. Well, I can speak to something and I talked about it a little in the Dave Matthews Band episode. I had two CDs that I did not let anyone else know that I was privately listening to all the time because I was a punk who listened to punk music and, you know, fancied myself, whatever. But I had David Matthews Band Crash. And I had the double disc of Live Across the Wire. It was a Counting Crows double live disc right. that had VH1 Storytellers session, which we played earlier, the Mr. Jones from. Welcome to Storytellers. And it had an MTV Live at the 10 spot. And I listened to those CDs so much, but I did not talk about it. <laughs> you know who else was like a closet Counting Crows fan? Who? At that time? It was Tupac. I'm sorry, what? Yeah, Tupac <laughs> loved August and everything after. Apparently, when he was in prison, it was like one of the albums that he would play all the time. And he really looked at it as like a lyrical inspiration. Like he thought it was like beautiful poetry and it was something that he felt inspiration from when he was writing his own songs. Damn, that's sick. <laughs> you know, they're, like, they're incredible songs. And, you know, yeah. it's... Does something have to be cool? You know, like, <laughs> can't it just be good? I think coolness actively gets in the way a lot of the time. And I think, really, if you look at the most timeless music, a lot of it was not cool in the moment. The things that were cool about it in the moment, those, those things pass away. Like, it's ephemeral. But if you have great songs, great songs always sound good. So I think relying on coolness can actually be a detriment 
to, you know, being the kind of music that we will talk about 30 years later. That was the most band splainy moment of that my life. That was a dad splain, right dad splain <laughs> moment. Um, well, where do you want to take us next, Steve? Like, what's the next song you want to hear from the Counting Crows oeuvre? oeuvre? I mean, we, we referenced this song already, but, you know, I feel like, you know, August and Everything After gets so much attention. Uh, and I feel like for a lot of people, even people who love Counting Crows, they don't really go beyond that album. True. Yeah. Steve, I know that we've already heard three songs off of August and Everything After, but I just simply cannot abide us moving on from this album until we hear The Rain King. Yes. I think it's just called Rain King, but I put it the, the Rain King. The he King says Rain. the Rain King in the song. Yeah, I think it's so. Better. I think it's allowable. Uh, one of the best yas, too, in rock history at the end. Exactly. Very you, boisterous. Yeah! Make sure you listen all the way through the yeah. This is Rain King. That was Rain King off August and Everything After. Um, I do need to come clean about something that um, in high school, maybe freshman year of high school, I did write a poem that did plagiarize some of the lyrics of this song and passed oh my them off as my own. I think it was the kind of thing where like I didn't even realize I was doing it. You know, when like lyrics live in your mind. And you just are like, oh, that's my original thought because you forget where they came from. Of course. And this will give you, dear listeners, a little insight into what I was like <laughs> as a 14-year-old. Um, the lyrics were, uh, when I think of heaven, I think of dying. Take all the time you need. Yeah. It's heavy stuff. It's heavy stuff. Also, I mean, we talked about it a little but. A lot of bird and feathers references in the songs, in addition to rain references, which may be uh, just reinforcing the Counting Crows name. I don't know. Well, I guess you left me with some feathers in my hand. Down in your sea of pins and feathers and all Marjorie's wingspans are feathers and coke cans and I'm feathered by the moonlight. Yeah. I feel like Duritz had a thing for rain, for animals, and for like proper nouns. Like those are the cornerstones. Those are like the core ingredients of a of an Adam Duritz song. And uh, yeah, he just went to that well a lot. Uh, but you know, like many a great chef, he's able to take those ingredients and put them into different combinations and produce, you know, a beautiful dishes one after another out of these you know same core elements. So true. I love this song. So, Steve, that was what I was like in high school. A little bit goth, if we're going to be honest. A little it's bit beautiful. of a poet. Love it. Um, what were you like in high school? Well, you know, I was a budding music critic even then. Wow. And that's I, I know. <laughs> it is. And I, obviously extremely cool. Reviewing records, putting grades on them. 
Uh, it was something I lived for when I was a teenager. I actually wrote a column for my local newspaper, and I have it right here. Wait, hold on. Just to clarify, this is not your high school newspaper. This is no. the actual town weekly yes. paper. I was a professional already making wow. $10. $10. Dramatically overpaid for my opinions at this time. <laughs> um, but it, it's okay. The headline is, Crows are a thankful respite from the top 10. Mm. And I guess the, the premise of my review was me making fun of the pop charts and presenting County Crows as an antidote to what was going on uh, in the pop world. Because if I may say, I was ahead of the curve on this record. This record was not that popular yet when I got into it. Uh, this was before Mr. Jones really became a phenomenon. So I really this You're, review, I think, helped break them uh, in America, I think. Uh, he, I think it, you had a lot to do with this. And like what town in Wisconsin was this just to remember? Uh, Appleton, Wisconsin. Appleton, um, Wisconsin, the we, epicenter. Yes. Setting the tone. Culture, yes. Well. I'm not going to read the whole review, although I know okay. you want me to. Uh, I'll just read a couple of the concluding paragraphs. Um, the band does have a breakout star, however. It's lead singer Adam Duritz. <laughs> Incredible observation. <laughs> exactly. Can I? Exactly. It's Please like, go you on. know, um, on August, he shows himself to be a remarkable singer, songwriter, and personality. At times, Duritz is a lot like a combination between Michael Stipe and Eddie Vedder, lacking only their tiresome pretensions. Now, I apologize to Eddie and Michael if they're listening for that, for that shot. Um, of course, the best things about the album are the great songs, Mr. Jones, Rain King, and Sullivan Street, just to name a few, are already classics in my mind. Their melodies are breathtakingly unforgettable. Um, and I was literally out of breath when I wrote that paragraph, by the way, because uh, my breath was literally taken away by the melodies on this album. Mm -hmm. If Counting Crows <laughs> doesn't go platinum someday, it'll be a small tragedy. They certainly deserve to. August and Everything After was perhaps the best album released last year. Grade A. Steve, just quick question. Were yes. you popular? Surprisingly not. Surprisingly <laughs> Were fun, not. Were you a fun teenager? Did you attend parties? Uh, I like to think that I'm younger now than I was when I was 16. <laughs> I was a very intense young man. Uh, but, you know, credit where it's due, I think that review is spot on. I would still agree with the melodies on this album being breathtakingly beautiful or whatever I said. Breathtakingly unforgettable, which I don't know what that means. Breathtakingly unforgettable. Well, that was gorgeous. And thank you for sharing it. Um, You're welcome. With me and the listeners. It is now time to move on to Recovering the Silence. I feel like the next album, Recovering the Satellites, is at least as good and maybe even better than August and Everything After. And my exhibit A in that case would be A Long December, which we referenced this earlier. I feel like A Long December is now maybe the most beloved song in their canon i don't know if it's the most streamed on spotify but i i, I would bet that it's probably if it's mr. not jones yeah 
but I I bet it will eventually be along December. Yeah, because every December, starting um, December 1st at 7 a.m., I start playing that song at least four or five times a day for the entire month right up until December 31st. And so me personally, I'm adding to those streams every year. Can we start this uh, like with this episode to think of Along December as like a holiday song? Uh, it's not holiday specific, but just a song that you listen to in December because it's better than any holiday song of any religious denomination. It's totally pertinent to the month. Also, most holiday songs are misleadingly cheerful when, in fact, the holidays <laughs> are violently depressing. And so that I, I'm with you. It does fit. I'll put that right up at the top of my holiday playlist next to Justin Bieber and Busta Rhymes's rendition of uh, Little Drummer Boy, which does slap. Okay, let's hear Long December. I mean, na 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 na, yeah. That Man. was a long December by the Counting Crows. I need to point out that producer Dylan, um, whose silence on this episode has been deafening, has no familiarity somehow with Counting Crows songs, except I guess the song "Accidentally in Love" from the Shrek soundtrack. Maybe I'm in love, love. Think about it every time I think about it. Which I guess are we a hundred, <laughs> Steve? I don't know. Like, is I just assumed that, like, they were so culturally pervasive. Like, maybe if you don't know the songs, you you would have to have heard Mr. Jones. Um, But I guess I'm wrong. I guess I'm old and out of touch. I don't know. Yeah. It's funny that she brings up the Shrek soundtrack because I feel like that probably is the only knowledge that a generation has of Counting Crows. Uh, And there's the song in that movie called accidentally in love which is you know it it's a fine pop song and i i don't dislike it that much but it is an interesting thing with this band where they've always i think after their first record you know they had so much success with that there was this weird dichotomy in their in their music where it was like super personal songwriting but sometimes the production is like very like geared toward the radio and having hits. Right. And Jangly. Yes. And there there is a part of me like if I were the if if I could be the Rick Rubin to Counting Crows, I would say don't do that. Like just put Adam Duritz at a piano, have him sing na 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 na, have him write like <laughs> you know, that that great verse at the end of that song, you know, the I guess the winner makes you laugh a little slower, makes you talk a little lower about the things you couldn't show her. It's an Oof. amazing line. The whole hits. verse is so good. You just write great songs. I, I just I feel like they were chasing hits. Yes, but no. Here's here's I make this argument a lot because my uh, love of '90s jangly music is well documented. But that was just the sound of the time, right? So it's like the songs on their own are incredible. And I make this argument. I was trying to, I was searching and I, and I didn't find anything, but again, I maybe didn't search long enough to see like if there were like 
covers of Counting Crows songs by other artists that have kind of stripped them down. They do it for themselves on those live albums, so you can already hear it. But, like, I think a lot about, like, Gin Blossoms, for example. Like, they're having a resurgence. I think people are finally recognizing how brilliant the songs are. But there's a cover of Allison Road um, by Tim Presley, who's a, you know, garage rock guy who's, you know, from White Fence, and I think he was actually also in the fall maybe but anyways he did a white fence cover of allison road and it's really beautiful (laughs) and it's like because all the the 90s alt jangle rock production is removed and then you just hear the song yeah exactly and i mean i'm 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 with you for the most part because i'm totally a child of the 90s so the glossy production on some of these records i've lived with them for so long that i they're just a part of the record so i i love them for what they are but i guess i just listen to it sometimes with the ears of someone who didn't grow up with that yeah totally and i feel like sometimes they would benefit from that and even recovering the satellites that record came out my first semester of my freshman year of college and I, I love that record so much because Adam Gertz was singing about being on the road. And I felt like I was on the road. Like, I felt like I was away from home and I felt lonely. And so, like, in Daylight Fading, when he's like, you know, I'm waiting for the telephone to tell me that I'm alive. You know, like, that lyric yeah. hit me really hard because I was like, I'm waiting for my girlfriend to call me so I can feel less lonely. Um when I think back to 96, there were so many albums by bands that were popular just a few years earlier that didn't do well at all because it was the beginning of like a new time. Right. You could be a band like County Crows that sells, sells 7 million copies in 1994. But then by 96, it was like, well, it's new metal time. It's boy band time. Like these alt-rock bands... It was sort of like they were over already, and it kind of changed the trajectory of like a lot of people's careers, even though they still kept making really good music. Well, like barely anybody sells seven million records now, and I think that's maybe <laughs> the. It's just it's just so different. I was going to ask you something. Yes, ask this me. This might be a oh, good. Nobody ever well, asks ask... me questions. What about me? Maybe I want to be asked questions. Have you listened to any Counting Crows albums? Like, how deep do you go into their catalog? That is a good question. Okay, so I'm like really familiar with the first two albums. I've spent some time with... This Desert Life? Yeah, because there's some really... There's some fucking bangers on This Desert Life, which we'll get to, like Mrs. Potter's Lullaby. Um, Honestly, past that, I haven't done a lot of listening. I feel like I can defend any Counting Crows album, but I would say for sure that This Desert Life should be put in the same class as the first two albums. I feel like if you are into Counting Crows, you ride with the first two. And then after that, I think a lot of people are like you. I think they they fall off after that. But I would definitely stump for This Desert Life being an essential album. I, I can make cases for the other ones, but like This Desert Life, I think for sure, I would say belongs on the A-team of Counting Crows albums. Before we move on to This Desert Life, I just am going to put my foot down and insist that we hear Angel of the Silences. Uh, Here is Angels of the Silences. (laughs) 
that was Angels of the Silences. <sighs> what a song, Steve. What a song. Really like the Counting Crows at their most rocking. You don't really think of them being like a hard riffing band and they're not really for the most part. But this was them, I think, discovering Pearl Jam and maybe wanting to do their own version of that, but in a more sensitive folk rock guise. Let's now move on to This Desert Life. Steve, I didn't spend a ton of time with uh, This Desert Life. Talk to me about this album. So yeah, this record came out in 1999. It's their third record. And it's an album that I think, again, if you are truly in the Counting Crows community, this is an album that I think a lot of people hold in high esteem. All the members of the Counting Crows community, we, we see you and we salute you. Yes, yes. We're, we're giving you a big bear hug in this episode. Uh, there was a hit song off this record. It's called Hanging Around, which is the first track. And I feel like you may still hear that on like adult contemporary alternative rock radio. You know, if that format still exists. I think that song did pretty well there. Um, you know, it's funny because I love this desert life but i always skip hanging around and maybe that's just me song yeah maybe that's just me being a snob and not wanting to hear the big radio hit um i think it's also because i want to hear uh the next song which is like one of the best songs on the record which is mrs potter's lullaby i think maybe i it's less about hanging around and me just being excited to hear mrs Potter's Lullaby. I also feel like this says her life, like the thing I like about it is that it is like one of their more experimental kind of like weirder records, at least like weird for Counting Crows, except for Hanging Around. Like Hanging Around is like the radio song. It's, you know, more straightforward. And I think I kind of want to get into like the rest of the record, which is a little bit stranger. Yeah. I hear you, but I disagree. Actually, no, I hear you and I don't even disagree. I just want to hear Hanging Around. (laughs) Let's let's listen to hanging around. Let's put on hanging around. I've been hanging around this town corner. I've been coming around. That was Hanging Around by the Counting Crows, which might be the second most likely to be heard in a CVS Counting Crows song <laughs> uh, after Mr. Jones. Don't you agree? I think in the I think also I I'll say it right now. My favorite genre of music is CVS core. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and I actually feel like Hanging Around is number one for CVS slash Walgreens slash grocery stores, at least in my personal experience. I feel like Hanging Around, even more than Mr. Jones, comes up. And maybe it's because um, it's a little more upbeat. And yeah, it is really like it, I can picture myself just gliding that shopping cart down the aisles of the Ralph's. <laughs> Like living, I'm like, yeah, I'm right here on the corner saying, where have you been? I've been waiting for you, like saying it to the nutritional yeast as I throw it in the cart. It's a feel good song. It's the full spectrum of human experience here. You know, (laughs) I think that's the point. You know, whether you're high off your ass or you are, you know, having an existential breakdown, Counting Crows can bridge that uh, gap for you and help you get through whatever experience you're into at the moment. Exactly. Well, since you said it before, you know we're going to hear it. Let's hear, let's move on to Mrs. Potter's Lullaby, which I also do love. Hey, Mrs. Potter, won't you talk to me? 
Okay, that was Mrs. Potter's Lullaby off of This Desert Life. A lot of the songs are like the song we just heard, which is there's some like real kind of non-pop moments on it. Um, There's another song on this record called Colorblind, which is in the movie Cruel Intentions. I'm impressed. Well, I'm in love. Pull me out from inside. Which, uh, you know, showed again that even when Counting Crows like weren't the hippest thing, they could find a way to infiltrate big, important culture. Like, are you a Cruel Intentions fan? I mean, that movie's amazing. Of course. Um, Producer Dylan says cool movie, but maybe not as cool as Shrek, which we'll deal with you later, Dylan. Um, <laughs> let's, I want to hear Colorblind because I love that song. And I, I think it's like kind of an important contrast, actually, to both Mrs. Potter's Lullaby and if we are going to hear Hanging Around, Hanging Around. Um, so here is Colorblind. I am ready. I am ready. I am ready. That was Colorblind by Counting Crows. The, yeah, it really, it hits. It hurts. That's a heavy one. Yeah, there's some heavy songs on this record. Uh, there's another song I really love that I'm going to beg you to play called Speedway that I really love. And, you know, one of the things that we, you know, we've touched on this a little bit in this episode, but one of the things that I think is really interesting and kind of like tragic about Adam Duritz is that he has this um, he has this condition called depersonalization disorder, and it's like a mental illness, like where you don't feel like you are in your own body or like living your own life. It's like you're an observer of like yourself, like living elsewhere, but you feel very detached from your experience. And this is something that he was diagnosed with in 2008 but he obviously lived with that for a really long time without really knowing what it was and to me it's it's almost like this shakespearean twist with him that he's this person who writes so intensely about his own feelings but in a way at least in moments of his life he's more like an observer of his own feelings like he's not in his own life sometimes and He's talked about how terrifying that is, and I feel so bad for him when he's talked about it. I actually interviewed him about this once, and at the time, he was uh, he was like on seven different medications, and he was weaning himself off from it. And he was very open talking about this, and he's talked about this in other interviews as well. But um, it makes me think of the song Speedway, which is actually like one of my favorite Counting Crows songs. And there's a line in the song where he he talks about how, you know, you don't know how I feel, you know, I have to go away and find myself because people can't connect with me. And he also has problems connecting with himself, too. I mean, like, how alienating must that be? You know, I think that's such a incredible thing in his songs. Wow. I actually didn't know that about him. Um, That's really cool that he's been so open publicly about it since so many people struggle uh, with mental illness and stigma. Um, I just feel like it's also like exactly what you were saying. It's like this poetic thing of feeling feelings too deeply, which you can hear so much in the songs and the mind's efforts to escape that pain. Yeah, I think that's right. And there's also something about being a writer, too, where it's your job to step outside the world and observe things. and in a weird kind of way, maybe that 
has allowed him to write these songs where he can write so plainly and eloquently about what it's like to be in these situations because there's something in him that forces himself to take a step back. And I think you that really comes across in this song, Speedway, which I, to me is like one of the most profound songs about, again, feeling depressed, <laughs> you know, just evoking what that experience is like. I, I, I feel like this song is such a powerful example of that. All right, let's hear Speedway off This Desert Life. Thinking about being on my own. Okay, that was Speedway um, off This Desert Life. That's a really beautiful song. Yeah, I feel like uh, we have to take a moment here to uh, put ourselves back together after that song. I hope we're not bumming everyone out with this episode. I feel like it's getting heavy here. We bum everyone out with every episode, <laughs> Steve. That's what we do here at Bandsplain. <laughs> we bum people out. Um, you know, especially in the context of what we were just talking about, that song is especially powerful. And I think the lyrics seem so honest. And I was thinking while I was listening to it, like, I wonder if it was delivered in a different vessel, how it would be received. Like, how do you mean? Like, kind of touching on what we were talking about earlier, where, like, how some of the like stylizing of this band and particularly Adam Duritz um, worked for them in the beginning by making them memorable, but worked against them in the long run by almost giving them a sense of uncoolness past what they deserve. <laughs> like, you know, they became cartoonish in, you know, in how they were perceived for a long time after. And that sort of like stole from their legacy or from like how good these songs actually are. Yeah. I mean, I think again with Counting Crows, there's so many songs that to my ears are just undeniably good. You know, if you like this kind of music, I don't know how you could really not appreciate that song. But there is baggage with this band that I think gets in the way of people appreciating that. You know, you mentioned them being turned into a cartoon. I mean, you know, they're associated with the Shrek soundtrack. I mean, they literally <laughs> became right. cartoons in that regard. Or, you know, and maybe this isn't something we should bring up on a pro Counting Crows episode. But for the sake of showing both sides, I mean, they did do a terrible cover of the Joni Mitchell song, Big Yellow Taxi, that unfortunately is like one of their most played songs. They paradise and put up a fucking lie. Nobody's perfect, Steve. Uh, they're not, but uh, my point is, is that things like that, unfortunately, you know, even if they might've gotten them some shine in the long run, because I think Big Yellow Taxi was like a pretty nice size hit for them. Um, it does detract, I think, from some of these deep cuts that people don't bother hearing because they think, oh, that's the band that was on the Shrek soundtrack or right. they're the ones who did that Joni Mitchell cover. Yeah. yeah. Um, but hopefully that will change because of this episode. Because of this massively influential uh, podcast. Absolutely. I think his voice is so distinctive. And because I've spent so much of my life listening to it, it feels like a really comforting thing for me but because it's also because it's so distinctive do you feel that that because 
that can be off-putting for people, you know, like distinctive voices, they're I'll I'll say the metaphor I say a million times on here. They're like cilantro, you know, you love it or you hate it. It tastes like soap to you. Yeah. Well, it's distinctive in a very sort of specific way that is, I think, polarizing to people because, I mean, every great singer has a distinctive voice. I mean, that's part of like what makes great singers great. They don't sound like everybody else. They sound like just who they are. But um, I think some people have distinctive voices that don't sing great, like Bob Dylan. Yeah, that's true. Exactly. And. I would say, you know, like, I mean, the reason why Bob Dylan is a great singer for his songs is that he's emotionally expressive. Like, he can communicate the emotional truth of his songs. And I think Duritz does the same thing. He's just doing it in a context that on one hand is really sad, which turns people off, and also very commercial. You know, like at their best, they sold a lot of records. They were a poppy band. They weren't um, you know, like the indie rock hero that sells, you know, 10,000 records and gets discovered, you know, a decade or two later and has credibility because of that. You know, this was a band that was played on the radio that sold millions of records that connected with just regular people. There was no sort of specific scene that they were coming out of. You know, I think so much of music is people wanting to put on a certain costume you know, where, where they feel like, oh, I'm a punk now, or I'm into hip hop now, or I'm a metalhead now, and th- this is my identity. You, there's nothing like that with Counting Crows. It's true. So, you know, I, we've talked about the dreadlocks here. He's, you know, those are gone, um, and he's still writing songs. They, you know, they have this new EP that uh, is coming out soon. Or At the time of this episode, it will be already out. The Buttersweet. Yes, The Buttersweet. So, you know, he's still going on. I mean, he's a survivor, you know, which is great. Yeah, I, I, I've interviewed him a couple of times. And the thing with Duritz is that, uh, along with being a really sensitive and smart and articulate person, as you would expect, he's also really self-aware. And he's talked about how he feels that Counting Crows got put into a certain box because they were so popular pretty early on you know like their debut record was huge and mr jones was huge and it was a time in pop culture where if you had like one big hit song everyone could hear it and you could still be defined by it you know years or even decades later so i think he understands that but you know this is a band that they tour all the time. They do really well on the road. All their albums that they put out usually debut in the top 10, if not yeah, high. Your you friend know, Yossi saw, like, saw them not two years ago with live opening, and it was gorgeous and wonderful. Yeah. And I saw that same tour. I saw that same tour. It was packed. You know, like thousands of people were there. So they're doing their thing, and this band still means a lot to many, many people out there. And again, it's because of the songs, which is how it should be. I think there's an interesting thing happening, and I don't want to call it like revisionist history, but where some of these bands that we've talked about are sort of being seen in a different, through a different lens now, many years later, like, you know, John Caramonica wrote that huge piece in the New York Times about Hootie and the Blowfish and about how actually everyone's wrong about Hootie and the Blowfish and they're you know, really a fantastic band and they should have been more, you know, critically well received. And, you know, Gin Blossoms that I mentioned earlier, I think in a lot of like hip and cool 
rock person circles are being, you know, seen from a different angle and, and really appreciated. But then there's other artists that I don't know if that'll ever happen for, which like we talked about David Matthews band. Um, where do you think Counting Crows falls in that, you know, in that roll of the dice? You know, I feel like there's a disconnect sometimes between how this band is written about and discussed and how they're actually perceived among just regular people. I think sometimes, you know, among music critics, there's always going to be a sexy angle to finding an artist from the past that no one else has said nice things about. And now you're going to be the person to resuscitate them. You know, you always want to be the first person to say something's good or the first person to say something's bad. If you're a music critic, you know, you want to be at the front of the line. Um, with Counting Crows, I, you know, I, I don't know if that will happen necessarily i do feel like there's a nice steady level of appreciation for this band among certain music writers and i'm maybe at the top of the list as far as being a counting crows booster that's why you're here babe that's why i'm here and just regular fans and i'll I'll put us in there like people like you and i who grew up with this music who still appreciate it as well as younger people the young punk and emo musicians who have name checked counting crows and uh you know as an inspiration and as something that they that they listen to and, and really enjoy and um i'll go back to something i've said many times i think it just comes it goes back to the songs you know and we've played a lot of great songs in this episode you can't argue with a great song you know, you can argue about whether something's cool or not, or whether something, you know, is trendy or if, you know, it, it's fashionable or whatever, all those sorts of things. But you put on a song and it affects you or it doesn't, you know, and you don't really have a choice. Amen. <laughs> um, you mentioned some uh, musicians that name check Counting Crows as fans. Um, I think we can include... The guy from the Gaslight Anthem, which you said earlier, is a big Counting Crows fan. I think I know of a lot more also that people would be surprised. Um, We're going to hear later from uh, Jeremy Bohm from Touche Amore, (laughs) kind of a surprising (laughs) um, fan. Also, famously, Touche Amore has a song um, that name checks a Counting Crows song. It is the song Exit Row off their album Lament, and the lyrics are, suffering has no purpose. Round Here is an almost perfect song. Round here is an almost perfect song! Um, And then, not a musician, but like, just recently heard Bobby Bones, radio personality and American Idol, uh, host i believe um huge counting crows fan and bill simmons bill simmons, bill simmons huge counting crows fan seth myers is a huge counting crows fan i've chatted with him about crows in the past and uh, he's had adam duritz and counting crows on his show before well speaking of notable and just beautiful and gorgeous fans it's the it's that time of our episode where we have gathered some of these fans and their thoughts and feelings about Counting Crows. And we're going to listen to them now. Strap in, Steve. I fucking adore the Counting Crows. 
They're like old friends who are always there at the perfect time. August and Everything After was the first CD I bought for myself at um, Keystone and the Crossing, Indianapolis, Indiana's fashion mall in 1993. I pretty much taught myself to play guitar by playing along with that record. I remember thinking that it sounded like a record that had always existed, but at the same time, it sounded wholly new. It sounded like nothing else that was on the radio at that time. And I just fell in love with the band, fell in love with the playing, fell in love with Duritz's writing. Adam's lyrics are just like startlingly direct and honest and raw in a way that has always been very important to me as a writer and, and a lot of the way that I try and write myself is to try and tap into that sense of like, the, almost bravery, I want to say, the, the bravery and the honesty of just telling it like it is and talking about the things that are happening in your head and your heart. It's like just deep enough to where like a young 20-year-old might understand what's being talked about and like feel very insightful, uh, but not so uh, out there that, you know, it was, it was hard to understand. I saw the Mr. Jones video and was mesmerized by the cardigan-wearing, dreadlocked Adam Duritz and was enthralled by the fun lyrics about a past band member who's made to sound like the Dos Equis most interesting man in the world. If it were released now, August and Everything After would be classified as an Americana record. And, and live, Crows turned these Americana songs, these songs based in you know folk traditions, into sprawling, beautiful, theatric epics. And Duritz inserted these rambling, brilliant monologues into the songs. It was just a whole other spellbinding thing. I could speak all day on the impact and inspiration Adam's lyrics have had on me, how he can paint a scene in your head with his bittersweet cinematic words and mention the incredible songs that came later in the career, like Cowboys or Colorblind. Mrs. Potter's Lullaby? Please, I mean, fucking come on. Like, how, how does, how is that written? It makes no sense. It's so beautiful and just so transcendent. They're hugely important to me and they run through pretty much everything I do. I feel like most of what I know about songwriting comes from them. I, I wrote a book about songwriting dedicated to, to Adam. I am sincere when I say they belong in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. This is a band that belongs in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I'd like to end this by thanking the Counting Crows for existing for all of us. Thanks, guys. Wow, Steve, I feel like um, a lot of like gorgeous thoughts there. And my main takeaway is that all Counting Crows fans like myself and yourself are just huge dorks. <laughs> and huge my, dorks. My, my people here kept it real <laughs> and kept in keeping with my thoughts about that. Uh, huge dorks, but also fearlessly emotional and passionate about this band. And the thing that strikes me listening to all those fan testimonials is that I think contrary to like maybe how Counting Crows are popularly received, you know, people think of them as being like the Mr. Jones band or being like this 90s act. But the people who love them, I mean, this band's music has like embedded itself in their lives and like threaded through so many different experiences. And it's not just a, a nostalgia thing, I don't think. I think it's because these songs and, you know, Adam Duritz's lyrics and the shows that they've seen, you know, it really moves moves people. And it, it, it tells them something about their lives that I think haven't gotten from any other band so i think that's a a great testimonial to the impact that this band has had on the people who love them 
I mean, also, I'm just like really struck by the fact that Jeremy from Touche Amore was one of those voices because I don't know if you've ever heard Touche Amore. I'm a colorless band. But they are not the kind of band that you would think was inspired by the Counting Crows. <laughs> they are yeah. a hardcore band. They are. They're a hardcore band, band but the, but there is that common link, I think, of emotional honesty. It's so and, true. And sort of unflinching exposing of your of your feelings, even if you feel like people might make fun of you for it. You know, and I think. In that sense, I can totally see how a band like Touche Amore would be inspired by Counting Crows because that emotional fearlessness that exists on their records, I think, also exists on the best Counting Crows records. Absolutely. Um, It was also interesting to hear from Frank Turner there that his music is so influenced by them. Uh, So everyone be sure to check out Frank Turner, Touche Amore, and also Casey Anderson, um, another musician you heard from who Adam Duritz loves. Um, we've now reached the sad end of our episode. Steve, our time has come to a close. Yes. Thank you so much for coming here and talking about Counting Crows with me at length, with honesty, with emotion. And thank you for listening to me talk about Counting Crows. Believe it or not, there's not many people that want to hear me talk for a long time about Counting Crows. So really, I I mean it, the pleasure was all mine. I guess we'll find out how many people want to hear us talk about Counting Crows (laughs) after this show comes out. Um, What song do you want to leave our listeners with as like a last closing Counting Crows gift to send them on their way? Well, one song that we didn't play already that is maybe in my top five of Counting Crows songs is another tune from august and everything after uh perfect blue buildings uh just a beautiful song i think it's a great example of everything this band does well so uh i can't think of a better way to send people off than with this song perfect thank you so much steve for being here um check out steve's books we'll have them in the show notes And you know what? Get you a little oblivion, baby. And come back next week. Here is Perfect Blue Buildings. If you liked what you heard today, subscribe for more episodes of Bandsplain only on Spotify. Our guest today was Stephen Hyden. You can follow him on Twitter at Stephen underscore Hyden and get his books anywhere fine books are sold. Huge thanks to the Counting Crows megafans you heard on this episode. Eric Dynas, Jeremy Bohm, Cole Kuchna, Casey Anderson, Patton Hughes, and Frank Turner. Bandsplain is a Spotify original show. This episode was produced by The Wind Beneath My Wings, producer Dylan, aka Dylan Tupper Rupert, and edited by Michael Hardman with help from Casey Simonson and Tari Miller. Executive producers for Bandsplain are Gina Dalbeck and me, Yossi Salak. Our gorgeous and catchy theme song was composed and performed by Bethany Cosentino and Jennifer Clavin, and graciously recorded by Carlos de la Garza in Los Angeles, California. Special thanks to Felipe Guillermino, Robert Adler, Leah Edwards, David McDonough, Dana Meyerson, Jessica Hopper, and the framed drawing of Dave Matthews I got on Depop, whose spirit continues to guide this entire show. Come back every Thursday for a new episode of Bandsplain, only on Spotify. 
That's a wrap, babes.